thank you so much for listening to another episode of CX Chronicles Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Brady Chisana. Tune in each week as we listen to amazing customer-focused business leaders from across the world sharing their personal stories about their teams, tools, process, and feedback. Check us out at cxchronicles.com today or listen on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Hey guys, this is Adrian, host of CX Chronicles Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in each and every week, listening and learning to amazing customer-focused business leaders from across the world. I wanted to take a minute to give a quick shout out on some of the things that we're working on here at CXC. Number one, CX scorecards. Take a minute to check out the CX scorecard and see how your business and team is stacking up to others. Number two, CX Accelerators. We are spending time with incredible startups and scale-ups across the country, helping them optimize their CX and offering them a number of different CX managed services. Number three, CX Bootcamps. If you're looking for a way to become CXC certified and level up your game, ask us about our bootcamps. You get access to a live coach on a weekly basis, and we will build your game plan for building your customer-focused playbook for success. Check us out at cxchronicles.com. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the CX Chronicles podcast. Super excited for today's show. Howard Tierski, welcome to CXC. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So, guys, this is going to be a fun, uh, a fun episode today. Howard has an incredible uh, batch of experience. He has built a super cool company that he's going to share with us today. So, I'm excited, Howard. Let's hop right into the fun stuff. Why don't you start off today's episode? Spend a couple minutes talking about how you got into this whole world of customer experience and digital experience and helping work with some of these incredible companies on, on, on shaping and evolving the way that they think about this stuff within their own companies. Oh, sure. Happy to. Well, thanks, Adrian. Well, yeah, I, I'm really fortunate today. I get to work with a lot of Fortune 1000 type companies and they bring my company and I in when they're really looking to make sure that they're creating some kind of an experience that's really going to work from a business perspective, which usually means the number one goal is some group of human beings need to do what we want them to do. Very often it's customers, probably 80% of the time it's customers. Occasionally it's employees or some other group. So people that companies that bring us in recognize that, uh, you know, in order for, I mean, just as an example, we recently did, we did the AAA roadside assistance app. Awesome. So in order for that to be successful so that people submit roadside assistance requests through the app instead of, for example, calling on the phone and also for them to feel like they had a great experience and not like, you know, they need to go find a competitor to AAA because AAA is not with the times. We had to create an experience that people would love. And so um, that that's what I do every day. That's what my team does every day. And it's just a lot of fun, both because it's really rewarding to see the end result and see how, you know, I feel like I get to go to work every day, and make people's lives better. And I love that. Yep. And also because the process of getting there is super, super interesting. I don't know, maybe not everyone would find interesting the things I find interesting, but I just love to like watch like what happens. And, and when somebody, you know, what we'll do a lot of ethnography, for example, studying, all right, well, what happens when someone go through this, goes through this process today? What's on their mind? What are they thinking? What are they trying to accomplish? What's important to them? It's sort of a study in psychology. Yeah. You know, you'd yeah. think, and, and, and so the opportunity to really get inside people's heads and understand that and then use that information to create something they're going to love 
Um, well, that's that's what I, I do today. So that's my current. Uh, and I guess you'd ask me how I got here. Yeah. I, well, now, first of all, before we begin there, though, you're spot on. How are they? All these different one of the coolest parts about working in customer experience, user experience, user design, experience design is you just nailed it, man. We get to blend some of the best of all the worlds. You get to play inside of sales. You get to play inside of ops. You get to play inside a product and actually deliver the technical features that are going to make people feel really, really great about working with a brand or not working with a brand. And then the other part is just, I know selfishly for me, man, part this, this is one of the coolest positions in most businesses because of what you just said. You get to sort of play in all the different weeds and then your job is to essentially put all these different teams and departments on the same path forward, work together, collaborate, and build from there. So that's like one of the most fun parts of any business, man. Yeah, totally agree. But now let's and, figure out uh, how did you actually get into that, that whole part of the story? What's the next piece here? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I started out in theater and I went to a school. I was uh, my, my, you know, what did I want to be when I grow up answer uh, from the time I was probably in junior high school was to be a theater director. And so I trained in that. I went to both undergrad at NYU and grad school at USC. And I worked professionally as a theater director. And although I, I, I mean, it's professional if they're paying you, right? But that doesn't mean they're paying you a lot. Right. So, <laughs> so I found that despite working as a professional theater director, uh, at least back then in the early 90s when I was in my, my 20s, you know, I had to do other things to make a, a full rounded living, shall we say, sure. in the time sure. I was living in Los Angeles. And so I was also acting as a graphic designer. And uh, back then uh, I learned that mostly because of my work in the theater, we were doing, well, posters and promotional materials and programs and you know and at one point I was working for a big performing arts center and part of my job was like the marketing material so I was doing that kind of stuff on the mac you know so that's kind of how I got into the world of design and um but what happened was as I was doing that work digital was kind of becoming mainstream okay. first in non-internet connected forms like things like cd-roms and kiosks and then of course with the internet so because I was there doing that kind of work, I all of a sudden started to discover desktop video became possible. And many of the things which I loved about the theater were also were about bringing people, bringing, bringing people together, giving them an experience, giving them something that was transformational, working with creative and technology teams together. And I started to realize that many of the things that I loved about working in the theater were also things that were needed as part of digital work. And so I found myself and it paid better. Yeah. So I found myself <laughs> spending more and more time doing that. And eventually I just discovered one day that I really wasn't doing anything in the theater anymore and, and didn't really miss it because uh, I was doing other types of work that I really loved. That's cool. You know, it's funny, Howard, I, I tell people regularly when I was younger, um, folks that know me well know this, I played in bands, I played in music, I played a bunch of different instruments, played in a bunch of cool bands. And as I got older in life, I, what I realized about myself was some of the creative energy that used to I used to pour into the music that it sounds like you used to pour into theater and pour into acting and pour in, in, into the fun of having these groups coming together to do these really creative things. I figured out later in life how to convert it into that into like more of a business flow, right? Where the same type of place or the tank that I would take from to get this creative energy. As I got older, I put it into business and I figured, and I got that same creative gratification and that same type of flow, but working with teams, working with tools, figuring out how to figure out how to put together process and, and, and getting feedback and working with that feedback. And I, so I totally can, totally can uh, understand sort of how that was a great launch pad for you to get into this stuff. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll admit that when I was first acting as a designer, you know, coming from 
the mindset of, of an artist, right? If you're in the theater, you know, this is a, perform, a performing art, it's an art. And the work that we do is not art. You know, it's business, it is, it is craft. It certainly requires creativity and skill. But to me, the big difference is in art, you're looking to express something and, you know, people may or may not get it. Um, but when you're trying to create, when you're trying, when, when you're doing design, you know, you're trying to help other people accomplish something they're trying to do generally, create a tool or an experience for other people that meets their needs. And so uh, while, you know, in the theater, there's not a lot of user testing. Of course, the, I mean, the way you do user testing is you do a show and if everybody hates it the first night, it flops, right? So I guess that's a kind of user testing, market testing. But, um, and when I was first creating digital experiences, I didn't really do that either. I just, I know what to do. I have an idea, you know, we, we whiteboard it out and we create it and build it and bring in, you know, and, um, and, you know, I, I, sometimes it went fine, but I, I started to see that it wasn't always successful. And sometimes I'd create something that I thought people would love and, you know, I didn't always love it so much. And so I started to become more familiar with techniques of usability testing, you know, in the very early days. I don't know if the SIG Chi still exists. I don't even know if they're still doing that. No, but, um, but explain what that is for the listeners. Oh, ACM, the Association for Computing Machinery, I think it is. Talk okay. about a, an yeah, anachronistic yeah. name. I used to love SIG Graph, which was a big conference they did every year about 3D graphics and, and things like computer graphics conference, huge conference they do every year. And then I got connected with SIG Chi, you know, CHI, Computer Human Interactions. And so I remember going, in fact, I remember going, gosh, this is probably like two, the year 2000 or something, one of their big conferences in Amsterdam and uh, at The Hague, and um, just being blown away by, by really realizing the possibility of user testing and these yeah. techniques that people were using yeah. to really get in the mind of users like we were talking about before. And that was really a moment, like I walked away from that. Like sometimes, you know, you go to a conference and someone's like, how was it? And you're like, yeah, right. eh. yeah, yeah. And other times you're like, yeah, you know, right. Right. That was one of those moments for me where I just was exposed to things that I had just never really thought about before. And once you're exposed to it, you're like sort of never the same again. So, yep. so um, your I, I just started incorporating the user testing as this obvious thing into everything I was doing. And then I've figured out better ways, get better and better. I learned more about it. Of course, hired people who knew more about it than I did and all that. And um, gosh, I, I don't know why anyone would ever go back. I love it. I love it. And that's a perfect segue. Why don't we jump into the first of the four CX pillars? Let's talk about teams. So Howard, over the years, as you were learning more about how to just perfect your own craft, get into the get into these incredible big companies that people, every one of us has heard about, how did you start thinking about the team aspect? What were some of the steps or what were some of the major learning uh, variables to you building out the team at from and thinking about how to get these super smart people on board to work with you to push these things forward? Yeah. Well, you know, by the time I started from, I've been doing it for quite a few years. Um, so I had a fairly mature mindset. I, it's funny. I was just about this earlier today. I was with, I was with Ernst Young Consulting when I really was doing a lot of the early digital stuff. And then that was bought by Capgemini. So I sort of was with a different company, but sort of in the same job, basically. So I, well, not the same job because it evolved over many years, of course, you're not doing the same thing, but um, and so I was there that I really kind of, um, I don't know, developed a lot of the sort of formative thinking about how to approach these things. Of course, it's evolved over time, but I was there for about 14 years. And then I, I started my company almost 14 years ago now. So it's almost like an even equal amount. But I think, um, you know, just like in the theater, you know, there's this hybrid of, well, you know, there's a creative component, then there's a technology component. And in our world, there's a, there's a sort of a business component, right? Which in theater, there there often is too, right? I mean, unless you're purely doing it for art's sake, you know, you want to sell tickets, you want something people are going to like, so you have to think about that usually 
in, in theater as well. So you have this kind of three, three legs of a stool. Um, you need to make sure you're kind of clear on, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? What's the definition of business success here? Yep. And then uh, what is, you know, what kind of manifestation of a solution will yield that business success? What's the, what's the design vision, both from a feature capability and from a user interface? And how do you make it aesthetically beautiful and all those things? And then, okay, well, what's the technology that's actually going to make that work? Because of course, if you have this idea that you can have this wonderful search engine and then you try to search and it takes 10 minutes or it gives you error messages, then obviously, you know, you failed in your, in implementing your vision. And so um, I always kind of saw it that way uh, that you have kind of, and then usually you've got that sort of fourth leg of the stool, which is essentially just project management and recognizing that these folks can, can do their great stuff, but someone's got to be keeping an eye on the bigger picture, the budget, the timeframes, all those things, because that's part of being a business too. Big time. And so, and so really, I always thought about those kind of four main categories of, of people, uh, the people who could make it, make sure everything was coordinated together, the people who could be clear on the business vision, the fundamental requirements, design and technology implementation. I don't know if that answers your question. It absolutely does. I mean, number one, it just it just highlights how for some of our listeners out there that are either building their own businesses or starting their own startups or getting their own thing off the ground. I mean, for folks that are doing that, what you just said echoes how hard it is to play all these different roles, wear all these different caps. By the way, I don't know if you guys heard Howard say it, but in the beginning, you're oftentimes by yourself. You're trying to figure this stuff out on your own. You're trying to make sense of what's resonating with the market, what do customers care about, what do customers not care about, what what buzzwords or what 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 things that when I'm telling a story or conveying what we can do to help you catches people's ears versus just you can tell it's not going anywhere. And I think that for folks that are listening to this show, that's a huge thing to, to, to remember is like, you're going to have a ton of different challenges. You're going to have to be a master of a ton of different trades before you can even get to the point where you're starting to add folks onto the team who are SMEs. They are subject matter experts. They know how to get things done for sales. They know how to get into the weeds and offs. And, and that takes some time. And that's a, that's really a luxury too of a, of a business owner that's growing a business and growing a team. It takes a while to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel very fortunate to have uh, at this point a pretty large team of people who have so much expertise in so many different domains. And there's many roles where if someone said, would you be better at, or they would, I would say, oh, you want this person. You don't want me, you know, doing those things. Um, But uh, I think that, um, uh, yeah, there's a time when you need to do things yourself, but I, I think you can also take that too far. You know, I think that some people who are starting a business, they're, they wait too long to bring in other people because maybe they're concerned about the cost or they're concerned about the, the commitment, you know, gee, I have this one project, but I don't want to hire somebody because I don't want to have to fire them in two months if this project's over. And those are all understandable things, but I think successful businesses, successful business people have to find leverage pretty quickly. If you're trying to do everything, you know, then your business is limited by how many hours you have in the day and you don't have any more than anybody else. And so uh, I, I think, you know, quickly figuring out, you know, you're much better off owning a third of something really successful than owning everything, but having to do everything because, you know, it's, and then, you know, actually you mentioned uh, sales. That's right. I didn't even mention that. You got those four legs of the stool that actually get the work done, but then you have to have people who are out there inspiring uh, clients to say, you know, we can help you get someplace new and, and you need these kind of services because when you're in the UX CX space, it's, it's amazing to me that this is true. But we continuously have to justify even serious investment in this type of work, even at the largest companies where you'd think, you know, nobody, nobody says, hey, I'm going to build this piece of software, but should I spend money on QA? Should I actually test it to make sure it works? Yep. Like you don't have to justify that. Everyone agrees. Well, duh, of course. Right. But 
But to actually, for example, do usability testing, to actually make sure that it's going to work for the customer is still controversial, which to me is you know amazing. But so that's, I think, particularly in our business, the role of sales isn't just to be an order taker or isn't just to be like a, like a used car sales, oh man, you know, but to educate and inspire and help them understand that that this is in their real interest, you know? And, and that's what I think is great about being in sales in our space, which is, I mean, there's some things where you're a salesperson and your job is to convince somebody to try to buy something they probably don't need to overpay and whatever else. There's very few things that you can sell which have a better ROI than the type of work that we do. And I don't mean specifically my company, but just this general space. Because, you know, people say, oh, I don't have enough time for that kind of user-centric approach. I've just got to get a product to market. And it's like, well, do you have time to fail? Do you have time to launch a product and have it be unsuccessful and retool the whole product? No, you know, you don't have time to not do this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, but that's not, that's a little counterintuitive to some people. And that's why really good sales is key to success. Yep. I love it, Howard. Super well said, my friend. Let's jump into the second CX pillar of tools. I'd love to understand. So with all these different clients that you've been able to work with over the years, and as your own team grew and you had more and more people coming on board, I'd love to just kind of pick your brain for a couple of minutes and have you talk about some of the things that you've learned about just managing a growing toolkit, thinking about, as especially, especially as, a, as a growing business too, Howard, how, what tools do you even want to pick and which which tools do you really want to invest in as the, as the team grows? Um, I'd love to just kind of pick your brain on tools for a couple minutes and hear some ideas around sort of how you think about it and how your team at From has kind of thought about building out its toolkit as the business has grown and scaled. Well, I don't have any tools that I'm really passionate about. Um, our, the tools that we've used for this have changed so much over the years, whether it's Axure, Envision, Figma, Illustrator, Visio, Photoshop, you know, plus broader tools, tools like Jira, Slack, Skype, you know, Confluence. I mean, there's so many tools. And I think that you can be successful with almost any of these tools. I mean, obviously I listed things in different categories, but, you know, I think it's critical that you have uh, a tool. And I think in my experience, it's best when the whole team's using the same tool. Uh, and, and so, you know, whenever the question of new tools comes up and it happens all the time, right? Because there's always somebody new joining our company. Yeah. Just in the last two months, I probably hired at least maybe eight people in the UX CX arena. So of course, fantastic people. And every one of them has come with their ideas about tools yeah, yeah. <laughs> and some cool tool that they've used. And, and it's always a little bit tricky because for one thing, I'm actually not the person who makes the decision about the tools anyway, but it's always this challenge of, well, on the one hand, it's always fun to play with the new cool sure, thing that someone sure. made. And Absolutely. on the other hand, when you've got a library of assets that you've created in one tool and you've got a team trained up on how to use one tool and you want that consistency, because I think in the end, ideally tools disappear. Yeah. And so one way, and one of the things that helps tools disappear is when everyone's familiar with that. So that's the trick, you know, when to, when it's worth jumping to a new tool and when to sort of just stick with something and say, you know what, we're, the new is not good enough. If I was picking fresh today, sure, I might go with A, but we're already on B and we know how to use it. So we want to stick with it. And, you know, but that, despite that mindset, it has led us to change tools over the years for certain things, like certainly for things like creating wireframes and prototypes, we've changed many times. But Jira, for example, we stuck with Jira for, gosh, I don't even know, more than a decade. And honestly, 
I'm not sure it's what I'd pick today, but I don't know that I have the energy to switch. You know what I mean? I'm not convinced that it's worth the switch at this point. Yep. Well, so a couple of things. Number one, um, I think you're spot on where it's the big thing that we work with our clients at 62 on the fewer the tools that you can have your customer facing folks master and get super comfortable with and fully utilize. And then on top of it, this is the CX nerd in me, Howard here, but then top of it, the data, the, 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 the data quality of organizations that use maybe one or two primary tools to capture all of the customer touch points, every phone call, every email, every text message, every live chat or every live interaction. If you've got customer facing reps, that have to go speak to the customer face to face. Those are all touch points that you can actually then take, take out, pull them out, totally, you know, drop them out of the table, like a, a bunch of different puzzle pieces and make a whole bunch of new sense from them. You're going to see different trends. You're going to see different commonalities. You're going to start to see different pieces of what really drives your manufacturers and ICP, your ideal customer profile versus your NICPs, people that probably aren't right for your business, aren't right for your products or your services. Then the other piece is this. I think that every business in the world, when they, when they, when they have the, the ability to really kind of have somebody that's some guy or gal that's owning this inside of the business and actually taking the time to thoughtfully um, just dissect this stuff, because it does take a lot of time. It does take a lot of energy. It does take a lot of effort. But again, the businesses that we've seen that really have one or two or three primary tools that drive all of that actual customer touch point management and collection, man, you should see some of the, the, the ability that they have to do incredible customer uh, feedback reporting, or even better, they can do incredible agent scoring or agent reporting based off of what those guys and gals are hearing every single solitary day from their customer interactions. The last piece is this, it's impossible for your customer portfolio to not feel um, the benefits of companies who clearly got their tool game nice and tightly knit versus, versus companies where you can literally feel as just an outside customer how shaky things are. Maybe, maybe yeah. they don't have your last three interactions. Maybe they've never heard of your name before and you've been a customer for years. Maybe they've, you know what I mean? Maybe there's, there's all these different things. So I think it's really important for our listeners to think about taking time with your team to constantly be assessing the toolkit, managing the toolkit, and looking for ways that you can improve your toolkit because it's a really easy place to start. Yeah, well, you raise a good point. And you know, as an as a agency slash consulting company, we kind of have two sides of the tool continuum. We've got our tools, like we were talking about further. And then we have the part that really are part of our client's ecosystem. For example, the data and touchpoint metrics. So first of all, of course, we have we do not have the luxury of consistency ourselves because we go to different clients and they say, oh, I have this tool, I have that tool, you know? Yeah, yeah. And frankly, they almost always have one tool we've never even heard of. You know, there's so many tools out which is, there. Which is one of the fun parts of our work, Howard, is literally you're constantly learning just these different things that people are doing that maybe sometimes they weren't even on your roadmap before. Right, right. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I have to say as well, the scenario that you describe, even if I think about it from the perspective of our clients, uh, I, we, you know, our, our client profiles, we work with large enterprises, that's our target. And so uh, when we talk to these companies, I don't know any companies that are like what you describe. I, I wish I did, you know, but almost every company, I, I say almost just to be safe, but honestly, I can't think of an exception that we go to has data in many, many silos and it's not being integrated in a, in a really great way. Certainly not across touch points, across the whole customer journey. And so, you know, sometimes we work on projects to try to try to do that, but um, man, it's tough. It's like cold fusion. And uh, because some, it starts off often as, as such a mess. And so usually the best we wind up doing is creating a business rationale to bring in these pieces of data together. But the whole thing, I'm with you. I, I love the goal. 
to me, it's an ideal. I haven't seen it realized, at least not in our client profile. It would be a lot easier at a, at a startup, for example. I think that's absolutely the right advice for startup. At large companies, usually it's already such a mess that I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but it's like, oh, geez, you know. <laughs> right, right. A lot of cleanup work. Howard, I'd love to dive into the third six pillar of process. So we've talked about team. We've talked about tools. I'd love just, just, just to get some of your thoughts on as From has grown and as you've just worked with more and more customers, spend a couple of minutes talking about some of the, the ways that you've really begun to kind of get a handle on process, managing process. Maybe it's maybe it's building playbooks. Maybe it's having those standard operating procedures on deck for the From squad to be able to sort of go into any customer situation to have a base success for sort of how they want to work. Spend a couple of minutes talking about process, Howard. Sure. Well, uh, we, we have over many years defined uh, our sort of playbook for how we approach a lot of different things. And we've created a lot of confluence pages and videos and sample deliverables and sample work tools, things like how to segment customers for testing or, or how to create a research protocol or survey tools and all these types of things. Um, you know, I think process is an area that is a lot more adaptable than tools. Uh, very often we approach a new project and it's this question of, well, we have, you know, I don't, I don't really believe in our business. It's like, we, we want to get so, so regimented in our process that we're like, Oh, this is how we approach every project. I think that the work we do has, there's certainly elements you want to carry forward. You don't want to have to reinvent the wheel every time, but honestly, if I have to err on the side of reinventing the wheel a little more than necessary, versus trying to force a round peg into a square hole in terms of how we should approach things on this project that, you know, because every project is different. I would err on the former side. I would rather be a little more tailored and risk a little less reusable process than trying to be too regimented for what we do. Now, you know, if we were serving small and medium businesses, maybe I would take a different mindset and say, oh, we got to get our costs down. We got to be super efficient. But for us, it's about quality. It's about delivering the maximum business result and if we have to spend an extra week on the project, the client, and if that gets the client a better result, that could be millions of dollars of difference. So it just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not worth it to be overly regimented. And just like I said before, new people are constantly coming into our company. Thankfully, people don't seem to leave, which is great. So we have most teams will be composed because we've been growing of some people who've been here for five, eight, 10 years. Um, and other people who just joined a month ago. It's very common to have that kind of dynamic on a team. And, and we intentionally try to make sure that if we're bringing in new people, they're not, we have some people on a project who've also been around a long time. But I always encourage the teams to not assume that the person who's been here 10 years should be telling the new person everything about how they should do it, especially because we do sometimes hire entry-level people, but most of the people we hire are quite experienced. So, you know, part of my enthusiasm about that is what do they know that we don't know? What have they seen? What, you know, and yep. again, if it's tools, we're like, uh, maybe, but we're going to be a little slow about changing. But if it's process, yeah, what the heck? A yeah. different way of recruiting subjects for a user study, a different way of thinking about creating calendar tools on a website. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. And of course, we can always test it and see if it, if it works or doesn't work. So um, I, um, I think that's the fun of, you know, the because... We're still in such a young space that's constantly changing. So there's a need to constantly figure out how to improve process. I love it, Howard. That's super helpful. Um, one one follow-up question for you. When you're working with some of these huge companies, has there been some common um, paths or some common trends that you've seen around how they think about their process documentation or how they think about their process curation or their process management? I imagine like you're talking about a, a, you know, a, a top 1,000 company 
these 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 places have there are these these companies have thousands and thousands of employees. You have to have you think at that size at that scale, you'd have to have some type of guiding um, you know set of rules or some type of guiding playbook. Has there any been any common trends that you've seen with these big companies in terms of how they think about their process? Well, a couple of things. So any company that gets to be big, as you say, has tons and tons of processes. They may not have tons of UX, CX processes because for a lot of companies, no matter how big, and there are, this is not certainly universally true, but that is not necessarily an area that they've put a lot of focus and attention on. They may have outsourced a bunch of it. They may have had a lot of change, you know, different teams. And so very often that's not super, super mature. When it comes to like, you know, their accounts payable and how they close their books at the end of the month or like, their, well. <laughs> right, absolutely. So they have tons of processes, but our area, sometimes I'd say more often than not, and I, there are different exceptions. I've, I've gone into companies, you know, uh, we did work, for example, with, uh, with Sotheby's okay. and they had very mature, uh, you know, design pattern libraries and like very st- structured, strong processes for how they approached UX and CX. Unusual unusual. And I'm sure there are others that we would say the same of, but more common is it's not very organized and not very process driven. I do think though that because what we're about is when we think about design, it's partly about driving innovation. And so the processes can also be a hindrance sometimes because all of a sudden you say, well, you know, we've just done this customer research and we believe that changing this aspect about how we take a new order or this aspect about how we position our product or whatever else will make a major experience improvement and lead to great business results. But then it's like, well, we have a process in place for how we do that. And there's a backend system and there's, you know, it's operations all of a sudden you're into, right? And now, now you have hit, you may not have clear processes for CX, but when you try to change the CX, sometimes you need to change something in the back office and that is very regimented. And then you sometimes run up against this, well, you know, this is how we do things. And if you want to make a change, you got to fill out this form in triplicate and then whatever, whatever. And we have a quarterly governance meeting, you know, totally. and, oh, you're right. and, and, and you yep. can hit a lot of, a lot of, and, and you know, those processes are in place probably for good reason. I always like to approach things with some humility and say, look, you know, somebody smart probably put these processes in place and they yeah, probably right. serve the company in certain ways, At one point. but they may be hindering the company in other ways. So if you want to get around them, just thinking that they're stupid is probably not the most helpful mindset even when they are stupid, because like I say, somebody put them in place for a reason, but rather to try to understand, well, what is this process accomplishing? And can I bring forth a proposal for how we can achieve this CX outcome we're looking to achieve, but not totally undermine? I mean, I'll just give you one quick example. I worked with a big energy company and they had, when you went to sign up for one of their energy plans, like for gas or electricity for your home, there were like 18 different plans you could choose from, right? And one of the I mean, I could tell immediately, but when we did user testing, it was clear that users were overwhelmed by the number of different choices that they were being provided. And so one of our initial recommendations was too many choices here. We need to narrow this down. Well, but you know, every one of those choices was there for a reason. And somebody's bonus was tagged to that choice and some deal with some company or some contract. So it wasn't as easy to just say, well, duh, there should be fewer plans. And so then you have to figure out, and this is part of what's interesting about our business. You know, then you got to be like, okay, sort of a politics shuttle diplomacy, whatever you want to call it. How are we going to figure out a path to the right CX result, but understanding that all these CX warts are there for some reason, and you can't ignore the reason or you're probably not going to be successful getting rid of them. 
or or like a wart, they'll just grow right back. You got to get them out by the roots, yeah. and the roots are the reason. That's my new metaphor of the day, my wart like CX metaphor. I like that. I like it a lot. I think two quick things. The first piece, your part about change management, spot on, right? For for some of our listeners who are still in the bonfire phase where they're building their business, they're building their portfolio, they're building their team. Maybe they're just so focused on the growth piece that all this other stuff, to Howard's point, is kind of still in the back, right? They know about it. They know it's something that they'll eventually get to, but they're focused on managing that growth. Change management is it's in, it's it's its own, it's its own science. It's its own art. It's some of the biggest companies on planet Earth have change management experts that literally think about what Howard's talking about, where it's not as simple as one process change for one team at a big company with 10,000 employees, one team changing a thousand different touches per, per week that literally changes the rest of the business. So excellent point on the change management. If, if folks don't know about it, you have to look it up and understand the basics of change management. So you can be a great customer focused business leader. Second piece, Howard, that we got into, and this leads us up perfectly for the fourth and the final CX pillar of feedback is, you know, the constantly listening piece, because you're right, Howard, it's like if you don't have an organization that is built um, in the type of way where you're listening internally, right, to, from team to department, even if there's silos and guys come out, there's silos in lots of big businesses, but there's still ways that you can communicate and listen across different teams and departments for, to understand or just keep tabs on what people are doing. Then the other part, it's the feedback part, understanding what your customers and your employees think. So I would love, Howard, for you to spend a couple of minutes as we wind down today's show to talk about feedback. And you must have seen and, and, and been a part of some incredible ways that these large companies have gathered feedback, but I'd really like to pick your brain on what some of the coolest things that you've seen, how companies actually do something about the damn feedback. And they actually, they take what their customers and they take what their employees are saying and they do something with it. Yeah, sure. Well, I think I would say maybe I would categorize feedback perhaps in three, three buckets. The first would be the kind of feedback that leads you to a product or leads you to a solution. And so I'm a huge believer in that. And my book, Winning Digital Customers, we talk extensively about all kinds of different techniques for how you get out there and understand your customer and do these types of things. And I think that's essential as a foundational. If you don't have that, then you're really you know, shooting darts with a blindfold on. So I think that's the first category. And certainly have seen you know, many, many great examples of, of insights that come I, you know, I'll give you one small example from my own experience. We were working on the commercial banking platform for one of the world's largest banks. So this is the, the web tools that if you're a big company and you have an account or accounts with this bank, usually it would be dozens or hundreds of accounts because it's the scale of business we're talking about, you'd log in. So at any given company, there's probably dozens and dozens of people logging in to manage the money in the accounts for that company. So we were looking to create an improved version of that product. And so we, um, we studied and watched people in finance departments doing various tasks, moving money around, paying bills, look, you know, et cetera. And one of the things we discovered was that, that they um, were constantly struggling with like their internal charge codes and like what, what to put in the memo field. It seems like this very like basic thing, but like there's this field a bank gives you, you can tag it to a transaction. And they had all these standards about, usually people had like either something laminated to their desk or they had some of those like page protector things. They'd have a binder and they'd have some stuff and they'd look stuff up and try to figure out what's the format. Because And so we, we implemented a very simple thing, which is people need field help for the memo field that's specific to their organization. That's all. So it led to a feature where if you were a client, you could actually customize an administrative interface, what the little pop-up help should say specific to your company. At our company, be sure you get the divisional charge code, the seven-digit code that you can find on blah, blah, blah URL on our intranet and put it into this field, stuff like that. 
seemingly very basic thing, right? Like very easy to develop, right? But um, transformational and massively beneficial. And so that's the kind of thing that you find sometimes. Now, not every idea that you get from that type of research, that type of feedback is going to be easy. But sometimes it's just amazing how you find things that are actually quite easy and really, really, really impactful. And the second category of feedback would be after, you know, you have something live. And so I think that's where it's key to get really, really good at looking at all of the sensing data you have. And that's kind of like what you were talking about before, things like your Google Analytics or your Omniter data, uh, your, your N, you know, um, uh, NPS data or other kinds of customer feedback. What are people calling the call center about? You know, some percentage, I guarantee you at any given call center, a double digit percentage of reasons people call the call center is because they tried to interact with your company in some self-service means or website app and failed. And so now they're picking up the phone to call. Yep. So how are you leveraging that knowledge? Or are you even collecting the information the right way? Meaning you want to coach your people in the call center. Sometimes someone calls us, the app didn't work. I'm trying to place an order. Sometimes it'll be like, don't worry, sir, I'll place it. What's your credit card number? Well, yeah, right. that's great for placing the order, but it gives zero to the customer experience team to understand what the heck was the problem. What happened? So, yep. Right. And it's totally understandable why they would do that. But you have the opportunity to say, wait a minute, call center person, this call can be doubly valuable. Can you say, oh, that's terrible. I'm going to help you get your order placed. But just so I know for the future, can you just give me a quick description of what happened? You know, yep. and maybe you wait till after you get the order placed so you don't frustrate the person. Let's place your order. But then if you don't mind staying on for one more minute, I want to understand what the problem is. And then that gets documented. Something simple, simple, simple like that to make sure. Because otherwise, you know, the problem with numerical data, like looking at your, your funnel, for example, and how people are moving through a, a checkout process, for example, is that it tells you what, but not why. Yep. You know, yes, there's been a fall off, but why? And then you're left to speculate. And so some of these other more qualitative research techniques, and obviously usability testing and ethnography and things like that fall in those same categories can help you understand why. So that's the second bucket. And then the third bucket, you were mentioning process before, and I would even lump this process and tools together. The third bucket is process feedback. And that's where things like an agile retrospective is really, really valuable. Getting people together after a sprint or a release or whatever else and getting and just getting that conversation going about, first of all, what went great? You know, I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they do these types of retrospectives is they start and say, all right, where did we screw up? Who should we blame? Who should we fire? Well, yeah, you know, this is not a good recipe for getting people to have a frank okay. conversation about, okay. right, exactly. But to start acknowledge what do we do in Austin, even if it was totally screwed up, you did something, right? There's no way you did it 100% wrong. Yep. Start with what was great, build on that, and then say, so, and what were we trying to accomplish again? We're trying to get here. Where do we get? Well, we got here. Okay, so how big was that gap? And now what were the contributing components and how would we do it differently if we had to do it again? And so facilitation of those types of sessions, as well as data, things like if you use a tool like Jira or something else, burn down data, something that says, hey, how many issues were there in our original plan and how many did we actually complete and all that just to keep everyone honest. You know? And it's okay. It's okay to not get everything done that you planned. It's better to just be frank about it, presume that everyone's doing their best and then say, how can we help each other do an even better job next time? So those would be my three categories of, of feedback. I love it. Howard, those are awesome. Those are super helpful. And then you just said something that's an excellent way for us to sort of wrap today's conversation, which is not only do those three, um, those three feedback buckets help just compartmentalize all the different ways that you can use this stuff, 
But the big thing that I just heard there, you're talking about an easy way of fueling the power of collaboration. Because the reality is the companies that are able to figure out how they can get their different customer-focused business leaders who own these different specific teams and departments inside of these big businesses, man, the faster that they can get people talking, listening, communicating, to your point, um, narrowing the gaps. Because you're right, every one of these things that we do in any, any business in the world, we do learn something. There are key takeaways. There are definitely wins, even if it feels like a big project loss. There's still things that we're learning from that we wouldn't have known if we didn't put this thing up into flight. And so I think that that, that ability to really force or push collaborative energy through your business, that's one of the biggest things that you that feedback forces, right? It creates healthy debate. It creates healthy conversation. And then I, I think one of the last things I think companies do an exceptional job of using feedback to equal maybe monthly or quarterly OKRs or key objectives that the business has got to get after and start pushing that needle on. Easy way to make sure that people are sort of all, all, all in flow around what they have to focus on for a given month or quarter. So incredible stuff. Howard, this has been fantastic, man. As we Before we wrap up today's show, where can people find out more about you, sir? And where can people find more about from? Absolutely. So and I just want to quickly build on one thing you just said about collaboration, which is it kind of also goes back to what's amazing about theater. You know, you're, you're, you have a theater production and you've got an actor on stage, but in order for the whole thing to come across, the lighting person has to get their cue right, the orchestra has to come in at the right time, the scenery person has to move the scenery at the right time, you've got all these different components, and when they all come together, the prop has to be in the right place when that person, so all those things, it's just another example of that that's the collaborative experience in, a, in an obvious way, but it has the same thing in the work that we do. Um, so yeah, well, um, uh, in terms of learning more about me and all that, uh, thank you for everybody who's been listening. And um, I have a book that came out earlier this year, uh, super thankful and excited that it's on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, actually. It's called- oh, Congrats, man. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's called Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. And it is heavily focused on how you can use CX and US technique, techniques to drive uh, successful digital interactions. But it also goes to things like, how do you sell that in your organization? How do you pitch for the money to drive digital transformation? And what are some of the challenges you face, like organizational resistance to change, and how do you overcome those? So you can find those, you know, wherever fine books are sold, of course, Amazon, Apple, Barnes & Noble, et cetera. If you'd like to learn more about the book, you can go to winningdigitalcustomers.com, or you can actually download the first chapter for free, buy the book directly from me if you like, if you want the hardcover for a discounted price. If you want the Kindle and all those types of good formats, you have to buy them from whoever sells them because that's how the that's industry how works. But anyway, in any case, um, the book also comes with uh, password protected access to a website with all kinds of supplemental material. So I think you get an awful lot for your 12 bucks or 20 bucks or 27 bucks or whatever they wind up charging you, depending on where you buy it. And, um, and uh, if you want to find me on LinkedIn, feel free to do that, to connect or follow. I do live casts twice a week. I have a podcast. So plenty of Howard Chersky content out there for those that are interested. I love it, Howard. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. I'm so happy that uh, you were able to come join and chat with the CX Nation. Our pleasure. We're going to keep in touch moving forward. Best of luck to you, sir. And best of luck to the team over at Frontman. Our pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Howard. Thank you for listening to another episode of the CX Chronicles podcast. We're thrilled to have you as a part of the CX Nation, tuning in to customer-focused business leaders from across the world. Be sure to check out the CXC website, and as always, find us on any of your favorite podcast players, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Thanks so much for making this show a reality and being a part of the CX Nation. And as always, folks, remember to make happiness a habit.